You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Father, we give thanks that we can join together for worship uh, this, this side of heaven um, and that we can study your word more in depth, that we can do it in security and, and peace. Uh, we pray for those uh, around the world who can't do that, but who love you and who know you as Savior. Ask um, for clarity and, and wise reflection as we come to your word and as we either leave or prepare for worship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, good to see you again this morning. Um, I, there's always that, that subtle insecurity after you teach one round. Are, is anyone going to buy a ticket for the second round? Um, and you did buy tickets. No, I'm kidding. Um, um, and, but I, we have a few more minutes than we did last week. Uh, and so I'd, I'd like to take just uh, a couple of moments to just reflect on what we were doing last week for those who weren't here, but also... I, it doesn't hurt our memories as well, right? It's, it's, it's been a week. We're, we're wrestling with the question of what makes the church the church. And we all know the, the easy answer, right? It's every three-year-old would shout it out, Jeebus, <laughs> yeah, it makes the church the church. And you say, yes, that's right. But we're trying to push it into a little more biblical theology and also some historical framework as well. So in other words, yes, we understand it. But how do we remind ourselves of it? How do we how do you remind yourself what makes the church the church through this last year? Uh, or when you encounter suffering or distraction or when we encounter um, uh, a, a new cycle that doesn't <laughs> quite fit uh, what, what we want the world to look like. Wallace, that's every new cycle is true. Um, how, how does that, what, what still makes the church the church? What retains is, is the question. I think that stands behind this. What, what retains that makes the church the church? And then the other, I think, aspect of it that, that led to um, some reflection on this is uh, too often, and I think this is, this, is a, this is a cultural thing, but in our part of the world, but not necessarily our part of the world, it, we get it mixed in. The church, the idea of the church gets mixed in with our social worlds, our, our political convictions, our cultural expressions. And if we're not careful and reflective, it stays there. It sort of fizzles there or it just stalls out there. And I think that's another reason to revisit what seems like a simple question and to sort of autopsy it over and over. What is this thing we're doing week after week? Is it a habit? Is it, is it a, you know, is it I get to see my friends? Is it I'm single and, you know, that, that guy's kind of cute? I mean, what, I know we're all going to say no to those answers, right? But we're still in attention when it comes to reflecting the behavior, the activity of the church, and then what it actually is. 
And to that end, last week we talked about culture. We talked a lot about culture and we gave some definitions of culture uh, from, uh, from Clearford Geertz to try to, to try to serve as a baseline. And, the, and we also used the scriptural launching point of Matthew 16. And the takeaway from Matthew uh, 16 is in the larger context of the gospel of Matthew itself. The takeaway is the church is mentioned once, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned 29 times, I believe, something like that. Um, and that the passage that references the church in Matthew 16 is very uh, deliberately, Christ's words are very deliberately putting it and locating it, um, uh, identifying it with the question of the kingdom of heaven. So the one mention of the ecclesia, the called out people, right? The, the, the people who are called out, the assembly is the way the Greeks used it a lot. Um, the, the one reference we have in Matthew 16 is in this larger context of what is the kingdom of heaven? What, what is God's kingdom? And to that end, uh, we see the church has a special uh, relationship. Christ establishes the church, a relationship between the church and the kingdom of heaven. But we also know because right after the Matthew 16 passage of upon this rock, I will build my church. Right after that, he describes his suffering and what has to happen for that church to happen. This thing called the church to happen. It will be built upon the suffering, death and resurrection uh, of Christ. And it, the church will guard this and the apostolic witness to this. That's not just a commission to the apostles. It, well, it is a commission to the apostles, but it's, it's, it's regenerative through history to this very hour that the church stands as a witness and guard to this commission from Christ, to Christ's work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his salvation, his rescuing us. The church will have authority as a living or continuing witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So those are the three sort of uh, uh, points from last week we really uh, focused on. And then uh, we turned to questions of cultural symbols and such and how cultural symbols work to uh, make us, to, to, even almost at an unconscious level, to make us aware of ourselves as a people, uh, where we can simply uh, group a, 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 put a grouping of things together and we automatically know or can identify uh, the subject or the context. And that's something to what, uh, you know, culture does to us. And then the question then becomes, after we examine the Bible part of it, right? Well, how is the church a culture? And the conclusion where we sort of landed the plane last week was the, 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 bio, the church is a culture um, the, the, well, okay, two, two, two points, two considerations. The church is always a part of the culture in which it participates. We can't escape that. Language, you know, food, music, art. The church is also always set apart from the culture in which it participates. And the way it is always set apart from the culture in which it participates uh, is, is really twofold. It's, it's the word and sacrament. It's, it's the, the, the two sort of cultural markers that denote who we are, that indicate who we are week after week, year after year, 
is the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word, the, the, the aural representation of Christ, and then the physical representation of Christ that bind us as a community. There's no other institution that's founded upon word and sacrament. There's no other institution on earth that is or organization or assembly or, or club founded on earth that has the gracious, loving, sacrificial death of the God-man as its center. Um, that's the church, and that's what it's responsible for. Uh, I'll pause there for any clarifications, because the next, the next move, then, is, uh, is to talk about um, politics. The church is poli- what does politics have to do with the church? But any considerations or hisses, boos, um, I'm used to it. <laughs> Keep moving then. Let's see if, they, if, if, if something's generated over the, the course of, uh, of the class. Well, politics, okay, what, what does politics do? Right? Uh, what I, I don't. I'm kind of doing the Billy Graham thing. I don't mean to be doing that. I just, I, I'm going to sit there until we need. We'll need it in a moment. But <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, like a security plan. What What does politics do? Well, I, I gave. First of all, it's a very un, uncontroversial definition. Uh, how do you even get at this, right? Well, a simple definition: politics governs and provides for the general welfare, safety, and peace of a people through making laws, enforcing laws, and providing security. (laughs) That's a nice sort of 10,000-foot definition of what politics does. The the mess is in the details. How does that work, right? What does that look like day in and day out? What does that look like under different regimes? What does that look like in different states or at the national level, et cetera? But as a general definition, politics does something. It provides something, a kind of... Non chaos. <laughs> Don't laugh too loud. This is supposed to provide a kind of non chaos, right? Where a certain order of to being uh, that, that really is tied to security and then various laws in the pursuit of what we might say is justice, you know, the equilibrium of justice and that type, those type of virtues that we value in the state. So just like last week, I want to do some archaeology here before we turn to Scripture because people in history have talked about politics even before the Bible, right? We have other sort of conversations about politics that have shaped the way we have appropriated it through the years. And primarily, those conversations emerged out of Greek thought, okay? They emerge out of Greek thought, and, and I think you'll see where I'm going in just a moment. The first real reflections on politics in the West come from uh, Plato, the, the Greek philosopher Plato, who outlined five types of government, okay? Five types of government, uh, and I'll, I'll say something about them, them briefly. Um, now, the reason why I'm mentioning Plato and Aristotle here is not because uh, we're, we're going to stay there. It's just the vocabulary they get, the, the conceptual framework is largely still in play. We, we really just don't outrun it <laughs> uh, in, in the Western world. 
Plato says you, you, government fluctuates between aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, and tyranny. Okay, that there's this movement that if you, if you walk around the Mediterranean world in Plato's day, you're going to see these everywhere. And he's kind of on to something. He's kind of on to something profound. Aristocracy is, of course, rule by the best, is what he means by that. People trained appropriately to set aside their interest to govern. Democracy would be like the military, like the strong people, right? Oligarchy would be the few, the powerful few, sometimes called a plutocracy, plutocracy or the wealthy, right? Democracy, the many, and tyranny, the one, okay? He doesn't necessarily mean tyranny bad there. He's just using it descriptively. All right. So that, that's one framework. Aristotle picked up on this typology also. Um, and he developed it a bit further. That If you look at the number of rulers, one ruler is a monarchy. But Aristotle develops it further. He says, well, yes, that's true. But it can be perverted. And a, a monarchy perverted is a tyranny. See what Aristotle does there? And uh, the number of rulers could be few, just a handful of people. Well, ideally, that'd be an aristocracy of the right kind of people ruling, but it could turn into an oligarchy, right? And then, of course, the many. Polity, is the way he was using this, would be like a democracy that works. <laughs> a democracy that doesn't work, he calls a democracy. <laughs> All right, so Plato, Aristotle gives us these typologies, these, these categories. Um, we don't find them in the Bible, uh, there's not a chapter on, let's look at the types of government in the ancient Near East. Uh, but, but, but we do find uh, that even, um, well, as the church, we're still living with these categories, some version of, of them. Uh, that the, the, These old Greeks were kind of smart. Yes, sir? Where would you put religious? Ah, so you... <laughs> Victor, you're just always so smarter than me. I, I, I put it, so you mean religious authority? Yeah, like you might have. Uh, Theocracy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm going. Yes. So, but one more, one more slide before we get there. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely on it, because that's where we can't... The, the Greeks didn't have a real concept of a theocracy, right? But let, let me, one more jump before, okay. before we get there. This is a word you probably use regularly, anacyclosis. Um, anacyclosis is not a disease. Uh, it simply means a cycle of government. And to, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that the inheritance then from these Greeks and, and later Romans, a, a Greek Roman named Polybius really developed this and, uh, idea, is that these things cycle. Monarchies turn into tyrannies. Aristocracies turn into oligarchies. Oligarchies turn into stable democracies. Then polities break down into unstable democracies. And then a monarch returns to stabilize the democracy, right? Here's my point. The world Jesus enters into in space and time is a world that largely believes in, that the, in anacyclosis, that this is how government and politics works. It's just this constant flux of these different categories of power. That makes sense. That's the world he enters into. That's the world we largely live in uh, to this day. Except, and 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 Victor nails it. There's this asterisk. <laughs> there's this other thing, right? There's a thing we would call a theocracy, right? That would be ruled by a, a set of religious leaders or propositions. 
a form of government in which a deity of some type is recognized as the supreme uh, ruling authority, giving divine guidance to human intermediaries that manage the day-to-day -day affairs of the government. Okay. Uh, this is the kind of government that Israel ended up with. It didn't start there, but it ends up there in the course of its old, the Old Testament story. And the first historian to coin the term is a guy named Josephus. Josephus, uh, right, he calls, he's a Jew, he's a Jewish, uh, Roman Jew. And he says, the government of the Jews is unique because it was a theocracy. It's the first time we encounter the word. Uh, and that is, it's ordained by Moses, the laws of Moses. God is sovereign, his word is law. And then, of course, you have a priestly caste that oversees both the, the sacrificial and political sort of ordinance of that culture, of that policy, okay? Well, that, and, and the Jews aren't the only ones. You have, you have analogs of this in, in Persia and Asia uh, and um, uh, Tibet, um, uh, even Japan um, to some degree, Egypt, parts of Africa. So the Jews aren't the only one. And, and today, of course, modern Iran uh, is seen as a theocracy. It identifies as a, a theocracy under Islamic law. Okay, so those are the types of government. Great. I'm going to grab my, my Bible now. Um, thanks. So th those are the, the types of government. What does that have to do with the church? Well, it has a lot to do with the church because the founder of the church, Christ, he enters into a, a world of discourse shaped by this understanding of politics. And particularly as a Jew, he enters into the theocracy of Israel as he's inherited it. Now, it's post-exilic. <laughs> it's changed a lot in terms of what he's entered into. Okay? And the reason why it's important to also understand that is Jesus never says, I've come to establish a republic. Or I've come to establish a democracy. <laughs> you know, it doesn't exactly have the right melody to it either, right? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, and in fact, if he, had, if he had said that, you can imagine a lot of people would say, well, get in line. That's what most people have done, right? What does he say? I have come... To establish a kingdom. <laughs> he doesn't speak the language of republicanism, <laughs> and he doesn't speak the language of democracy. He doesn't speak the language of either ancient or modern political forms. Well, with one exception, the kingdom is a monarchy. The kingdom is ruled by one. A kingdom is, is um, a sovereign, a type of sovereign. So in that sense, uh, Christ does identify himself with a political uh, position, a political um, um, uh, type. That's the right word, not position, type, a kingdom, right? Making sense so far? But, but, and this is also, this is where I want to use as a launching point today for uh, understanding that. Um, he doesn't leave us there with, I've just come to establish a kingdom. He messes that up for us. I'll pause. Are there any questions about, that was a lot. I just don't want anything or clarifications or com even comments. Um, good. 
I tell you that as I am perfectly clear in what I'm, what I'm doing. So, Well, our, our launching point biblically then, uh, if last week was Matthew 16, where he first uses the, I'm going to build this ecclesia upon this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and it will hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that guardian status. Uh, our launching point today is the familiar passage from John. John 18, 33 through 38. And this is, uh, this is uh, if, if, if you're not, if you're scrambling to think about it, just give it a second, it'll sink in, because this is, this is the long night of, the, of Jesus, the, the long dark night of the soul for, for our Savior and his disciples, his, his apostles. Uh, it's just before Peter's denial, the, the thrice denial, and it, uh, it's, it's Jesus being handed over to Pilate, uh, a political figure, a governor, a Roman figure, and who has handed him over? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the political leaders of, of Judea. So a political exchange has taken place as we might say, uh, of, of, of our Savior. And uh, Pilate has all the insouciance and indifference of a Roman governor in a province he probably didn't want to be in to begin with. Um, what does he say? He says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So again, a political exchange has taken place and now a political title is being tossed around a king. Uh, Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? What is the origin of this accusation? What's the origin of your question? Is it coming from you, the insouciant, indifferent Pilate, or is this coming from other people? Pilate answers, am I a Jew? So notice the exchange that's going back and forth here. Uh, it's, a, it's an exchange of political identity. Am I a Jew? And religious identity. Your own nation and the chief priest had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers. And this is interesting. Because he hasn't done anything. <laughs> and of course, he's not going to say, I haven't done. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say nothing. <laughs> which is what I would say, what you would say, right? I didn't do anything. Let me out of here, right? He doesn't say that. Once again, we stay stuck in a political discourse. My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, by the way, that's possessive. My kingdom. Are you a king? What do you, who do you think I am? Well, they handed you over to me. Who are you? What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. Um, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Um, it's a strange answer. <laughs> and you can imagine either Pilate was really spooked or really annoyed. They're both at this point when he hears this. So you are a king. You say 
that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? Kies veritas. What is truth? A lot going on there. But a dramatic sort of reimagination and rearticulation of what the kingdom of God is. My kingdom is not political. But by virtue of the fact I am a king, it is political. In your understanding of things, it is. But it's power. It's, it's, it's power is fundamentally unworldly. It's otherworldly. It's outside of the politics of this world. And how, how, how much so? Because the whole purpose in my kingship, my purpose, is truth. The purpose of my rule is not power, but truth, which is power. <laughs> so, obviously, a, a rich almost unminable part of that scripture we could just keep going back to to figure this out what is he doing here uh, by subverting Pilate's narrative of what power is supposed to be and the Jews for that matter I think there are a few things going on here and that we want to be just cautious as we read careful readers and thinkers he uses a, Jesus uses a political description kingdom in association with himself and his ministry. Now, we talked about this some last week. The, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like passages over and over again. The, he never separates himself from the idea of what the kingdom is. And he's all, there's always an association. At the same time, he distinguishes without ambiguity in his confrontation with Pilate that his kingdom is not like the politics of this world. Right. So whatever we think politics is in terms of even safety, security, peace, stability, lawmaking, um, the right to use the military force, you know, that type of stuff. He's saying that's not that's not what I'm here to do. My way is not the way of the political culture that we've inherited. Why? Because I'm here to bear witness to the truth and in bearing that. The witness to that truth is that the only way he is a king, the only way he assumes kingship is by a suffering, death, and resurrection. He becomes the king. He is the king in confrontation with Pilate. And he becomes the king. He owns it through the cross and the resurrection. Let me show you why I think that's important for our understanding, because if you turn to the other place, the other great passage, the birth of the church passage in Acts for the time of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the, the, the remaining apostles and, and everyone gathered there. In Acts 2, uh, Peter um, uh, for, first of all, we, we, we mark this passage as the birth of the church. 
uh, as Christ's ascension. Christ has died. He is raised. He is ascending now. And Peter, it's fascinating to me as well that Peter, when we talk about the church, Peter's always standing there. He's either in trouble, he's saying something pretty smart and elegant, or he's, he's being rebuked. But when we talk about the church and the founding of the church, Peter's nearby. And here in Acts again, Peter jumps up and says, let me explain what's going on here. <laughs> what's happening as these tongues of fire have now touched and, and, and begin to spread the gospel, essentially, in these different languages. Uh, let's see. I might, if you'll allow me, just read a little bit more. Um, the day of Pentecost has arrived. Um, and uh, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, signs of the kingdom, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then who does he reference? David, the king, Israel's most prominent king. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord. David says concerning him, the Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then we pick up sort of in this area here. He turns back to the crowd and says, Brothers, this is Peter, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, ruler, and Christ this Jesus whom you sacrificed. So, here at Pentecost, right? Here at Pentecost, as, as we're seeing this pattern unfold, we're seeing now the realization of Christ's authority acknowledged in the line of David as a king, as a political office, for lack of a better vocabulary on our end, right? And... It's in conjunction with the suffering, death, resurrection 
and the church. The church is born in witness to this. This kingship. He is now seated at the right hand of God. He did it. He became a king um, through the cross. Okay. The church then is established by Christ in relationship to the kingdom of heaven, and it's born, and Peter explains it to us as an... um, uh, 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 It's co-born, it's twin-born with Christ being seated in Acts 2. Christ achieving redemption, accomplishing redemption. All right, so if we accept all this, uh, and why don't we just say this this is as clear as day, let's never argue about it again and move on. And of course we know that's not what's happened, that we've been in long discussions in the church for centuries over what is the church? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? How is it related, right? Well, this is a a little (laughs) chart that may help um, that uh, the church and Israel stand in continuity to one another in this understanding of of kingship. Uh, The church and Israel stand in, 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 in what the kingdom is. There's a disagreement, of course, over who the king is. And there's conflict over that. But one way to, to break it into is that when we locate the church in what we might call redemptive history, the pattern of redemptive history through Scripture, is we, we know through the Old Covenant, Christ, uh, Christ's kingdom is anticipated the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. It's, it's leading us to the cross. It's leading us to um, the sacrifice and resurrection of the new king. Christ himself inaugurates this kingdom on earth through the crucifixion, his ministry, the crucifixion and, re- and uh, resurrection. The church itself then is a part of that redemptive moment, anticipating his kingdom being fulfilled in the last days, the eschaton, the, the return of Christ. Right? It's a simple diagram, but it's an important one, as, as I'll try to show you in just a moment. Okay, so the idea here uh, that, I'm, that I'm trying to convey is that it's, it's the old already not yet paradigm you've heard for maybe for years or maybe you're hearing it for the first time that yeah, Christ has inaugurated the kingdom. Christ is ruling But it's the church that bears witness to that kingdom on earth, anticipating the actual thing. Not just a type, but the thing itself. A real eschatological rule of God. The church is not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. It is an instrument of the kingdom. It's an instrument of the kingdom with a culture, (laughs) word and sacrament. So continuity, my arrows indicate continuity. There you go, that way and that way, two horizons of the church. And I say that because because in in modern times, I think this has become really sort of screwy and confusing, (laughs) as if it couldn't be in other times as well, right? In summary, the church bears witness to Christ's inaugurated kingdom. We guard 
we, the church, can protect our proper understanding of Christ's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2. And the church anticipates the fulfillment of the kingdom. Okay? In a weird way, to use the language of Scripture, we're, we're, we're kind of wandering and pilgrim-like, waiting on our king, but knowing that he's there. Two errors, I think, have creeped out of the last uh, 200 years, starting in the 19th century, that I think there are two errors worth mentioning here, uh, and without going into great depth, all right? But I do want to mention them because I, 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 it, 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 it's changed the vocabulary and conversation tremendously. The first one um, comes out of what we might call, what has been called dispensational theology or dispensationalism. Uh, here, and, and this airs more on the conservative side of the church, but here, instead of continuity in this idea of the kingdom of God as it's grown out of Israel and is stewarded by the church, God is seen as having two distinct people he's been working with in history. Israel is one thing, the church is something else. They have se- their separate plans for each. Israel will be a physical earthly kingdom. The church is a spiritual kingdom okay Uh, Israel will fulfill a kind of national destiny according to this thinking the church rather will find its fulfillment in heaven again this is a whole nother lesson but it's worth mentioning um, that it's worth mentioning because it is a break in what I've been saying here all morning (laughs) It's saying something different because it's saying that there is a different kind of dispensation or purpose for these uh, political manifestations of things through Israel, the church, and the, and the kingdom of God. Okay, This is a 19th century uh, mode of thinking that, that uh, uh, out of uh, Britain, England, and America primarily. Let me put it another way. The church, have you heard that the church is a parenthesis? in the prophetic kingdom program. Um, it, it's, not, it's something that God has set aside to protect, to bring about the purpose of Israel as well, right? And that's a dispensationalist way of talking about um, the politics of the church, the politics of the kingdom. And this is also why, uh, associated with this, you see a lot of prophecy movements associated with it because you're trying to read the tea leaves literally (laughs) the newspaper (laughs) when we had them Um, the other one is theological liberalism I'm painting with a broad brush here and here this is also a 19th century development but here uh, instead of the kingdom being seen as uh, already not yet as we're waiting on its sort of fulfillment consummating history it is more of an imminent this worldly achievement it the church becomes a conduit of morals and ethics of improving the social good so the politic the the moral and ethical impulse of the kingdom becomes realized in the church's political and social activism so to speak or commitments interesting and it's another conversation why these both sort of emerge post-1850 in the West, but they do. And a summary of this is Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God 
but not the church. The church, if you, if you think about it in both, the church kind of gets in the way of the real thing. <laughs> Israel, ethics, <laughs> you know, does that make sense? That's not what the Bible teaches. It just simply doesn't teach that. I'm going to conclude. Uh, just a couple more, if you can bear with me. Um, that we, uh, we, we are, re, uh, we, this is reiterated, this, this, this pattern or this understanding of the relationship of Christianity to politics is reiterated through the Apostle Paul and in the book of Hebrews because Paul tells us he speaks the language of citizenship, but he doesn't allow us to anchor it to any geopolitical world. He says, and there's a context for each of them isolating these uh, pretty severely here, but you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's talking to them as non-Jews here, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You belong to something else now. Okay, or Philippians uh, our, Philippians and Hebrews talks a good bit about the suffering in this context. Philippians, Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a savior to fulfill the kingdom. And then Hebrews, of course, we do not here have a lasting uh, city. We are seeking the city, which is to come. So it's a re-emphasis through Paul on this question of otherness, of politics that is both inaugurated and waiting, but also of this dual citizenship, that citizens belong to particular nation states with particular laws, particular identities. I couldn't come up with a picture for the kingdom of God, so that's what I came up with. <laughs> so um, uh, the citizenship in the kingdom of God is resurrection and glory. It's something else regardless of the, what flag we're living under. It, it, they may correspond at times and connect at times, and you may see evidence of, of, of the kingdom of God at work, but it's never, you can never measure it through earthly politics because it is something else. It's a dual citizenship um, that, that can find us in conflict a lot. You can never collapse the kingdom of God into a sociopolitical order. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer has one of the best quotes. A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. So, any questions or... Yes, ma'am? There's a slide before the other slides uh, that, we're ta that talks about what the church really is, and it talks about protection we're supposed to guard and protect. Can you go to that? Um, I appreciated that definition. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll try to find it. Um, I think it was... Kind of early on? No, it was, it was before you went to what the church is. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. We're, we're, okay. Yeah, the church guards and protects the proper understanding mm -hmm. of Christ's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is, yeah. praise God for that. Yeah. And, and, it, and we, we talked a little bit last week, and it doesn't mean there won't be errors. Right. There are. Right. <laughs> History is a, is a hard taskmaster yeah. when you start combing over it. Um, there's this thing called the Crusades. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. We get it wrong. But it doesn't change the ideal or what Christ established, which is we're, we are in a constant process of guarding 
protecting, discerning the truth. And bearing witness. And bearing witness. And bearing witness to Christ's inaugurated kingdom. You know, bearing witness to what he's done for That's us. That's right. And how that changes us. That's right. That's right. And we, we see that through acts of charity, grace, love, evangelism. There's multiple ways we can see that witness born. So, whoever it was, you had the quote on uh, several slides. Right? The, the, the quote that says Jesus teaches only about the kingdom, not about the church. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The nice so, sunset. <laughs> so, go, going back to the, to the other, the, it, it, with somebody like that who, who would say that, yeah. they would say, church then obviously is, is not about protecting or yep. bearing witness. The church is, yep. is just a human mechanism for whatever the humans want. I think that's right. I, the the it's phrase I would... Their anticipation of what the kingdom is. Mm-hmm. Doctrine's not important. Doctrine, that's a simple way to say it. And this is a, this is Again, it's a it's a more of a modern phenomenon in the way it's developed. It's it's been around a while, but the idea is the church gets in the way of truth. We get in the way by trying to create systems of doctrine that then um, either hide or change or create judgmental kind of uh, reflexes on what should be the love of the kingdom of God. The kingdom then becomes an analog of whatever the political culture is you're living in. That's right. But I mean, that's the central dichotomy, right? That's it. I mean, when you look at what Jesus says to Pilate, like, that goes against all kind of government. It subverts it all. Sit back and, like, take a rope and dive on this. I mean, that's, you know, I think about it in terms of, like, recovery organizations, like AA, NA, and all those. Yeah. They're literally the, the, the byline is we have no leaders. And it's almost like, is that what we're talking about here? Where literally the, the attempt by humans to impart order upon the church is in and of itself diverting the church from its central like purpose. But the recovery says our leaders are but trusted servants, they do not govern. And so you still have leaders as servants trusted to does that make sense? That's true. Just That's like true. the church would be a servant you know, of yeah. the Lord, you know, yeah. like a trusted servant, you know, not governing necessarily, you know, but being a trusted servant with the yeah. truth, I guess. I, I, I think that's right. Uh, any other thoughts? Or Yes, sir. Daniel, Daniel, so, go ahead. What do we do with, like, the phrase, you know, church on earth and in heaven? If yeah. The church is just guarding what is to yeah. come. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm just a, a little bit skeptical of seeing yeah. churches merely guarding a kingdom to come to Well, so I don't think it is just guarding. I think it's guarding and witnessing. I think there's multiple verbs that go with it. I think it is both a protector but it also bears witness to. I mean, it is actually carrying out that which it's been a, its purpose on earth, which is the, the, the word and the, and the sacrament and, and, and salvation, carrying forth the proclamation of salvation. Uh, that, so under, I don't know where I put it, but the word witness I meant in there broadly considered, I, I, at least I intended it as, um, it's more than just sitting and guarding. <laughs> There's activity. Um, and... And it's more than just representation, right? So it's it, it's protecting, it's guarding, but it's also witnessing, it's living, 
it's living it out as well. Well, the church isn't the thing itself when we talk about God's reign. It isn't like God's reign on earth. In no. Good. <laughs> Matt. I think the way you define it is helpful because what it, what it suggests is in terms of having a core identity, the church has limiting principles. Yeah. That means to pick a political issue, and I won't, I won't use an example, just pick any one, the church could bear witness in the sense of saying X is good or X is Wrong. Yeah, but it's limited in the sense that it can't say you must therefore assume right. a certain public policy position, or you are no longer a Christian. Or you are no yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. now there are there are raw. You know, I understand. I understand. Yeah, that would be the exception to the rule. Yeah. But that definition places limits. So yeah. that's where, in terms of the duality of the church and the kingdom, you could come in a kingdom sense say we must not do X relationally or, or whatever, but that it doesn't necessarily. It doesn't yes. necessitate, necessitate that you take a yeah. specific position from a legislative standpoint. I think that's well said. If I could just tweak it one more, and I know we need to go. I mean, I would. the church, we don't deny there's an ethic or a moral composition to Christ's teaching or to what he, how he's talking about the kingdom and the kingdom ethics. It's in that, I'm going to use the word application, that uh, where, how it's applied, where it's applied, why it's applied, that ends up being... We, we can't speak as authoritatively sometimes on what that looks like. There are moments when we have to be silent and accept his lordship as it is because we can't find that immediate ethical move. Or there are moments when we try to force an ethical, moral mandate and uh, almost always it, uh, it, it, it backfires. Because the because the application changes depending on the context you're in. Um, let's pray. <laughs> God, thank you that we could search your word and search these ideas, and uh, most especially we pray, Thy kingdom come, uh, Thy will be done, and that we continue to. Uh, be found in your grace and the hope of your glory as we await that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.